Hello friends, welcome. Always delighted to have you with me and I wanna give you a little content warning right at the top. Today's topic deals with true crime. So it is not going to be appropriate for young children. So if you have little kids, listen to this without them because it is a very fascinating conversation with cold case investigator, Paul Holes. And if you are already a true crime fanatic, you might be familiar with him. You might be familiar with his podcast, Murder Squad. He has a new book out called Unmasked. And he is talking a lot about his work as a criminalist and a lot about his work identifying the Golden State Killer. So let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and welcome to the Sharon Says So podcast. Thank you so much for doing this, Paul. I know so many people who listen to this podcast, they are fascinated by true crime. And you are one of the people that many people are like, you need to speak to Paul. So thanks for doing this. Uh, It's my pleasure. It's nice to meet you finally, Sharon. So give us a tiny bio. I know it's always weird to talk about yourself excessively, but just give us some context about your career your relationship to true crime and how you got to do what you spent most of your adult life pursuing? Sure. You know, I'm a little bit unusual. I ended up getting into my career because of a TV show back in the day called Quincy. He was a forensic pathologist and that was like, oh, I'm fascinated and that's what I want to do. And so I thought I was going to go to medical school. So after I graduated high school, I went to UC Davis and I was in their pre-med program and got a degree, my BS in biochemistry. And I ran across a job description. I found out about a career in criminalistics. And then I got hired as as a civilian forensic toxicologist doing drug analysis and alcohol analysis back in 1990. And eventually was promoted to a deputy sheriff criminalist position, which required me to go to the police academy. And then once I completed the police academy, I was assigned back to the crime lab doing crime scene investigation, assigned to the old serology unit, which was, you know, ABO testing and enzyme testing and protein testing. But we were on the very front edge of DNA testing. So eventually I became a DNA analyst in addition to working in a variety of forensic disciplines and going out to homicide scenes and also involved shootings and hundreds and hundreds of drug labs. But I, early on, I found a passion for cold cases and serial predators. And I quickly learned that just being stuck in the lab wasn't for me. And that's when I started getting involved in cold case investigation, even though my bosses didn't know what I was doing. Um, I <laughs> started doing my own thing. You know, and and then rose up through the ranks within the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office, where I became a division commander overseeing all of forensics and was bored out of my skull writing memos and doing spreadsheets. And that's when I really started digging into what would become the Golden State Killer series. Mm -hmm. And I had a long, long time association with that case at that point in time. I reached out to the DA at the time and said, hey, I would love to come over to your office what about a job? He, after three years, he created a position for me. And then I officially became a cold case investigator with the Contra Costa County DA's office. And eventually working with my partner in the FBI, Steve Kramer, as well as a small team, we were able to solve the Golden State Killer case using, which at that time was an unheard of technique, you know, which is now known as investigative genealogy or genetic genealogy. And we identified Joseph D'Angelo as the Golden State Killer. Mm. What a resume. (laughs) 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 I want to get into Joseph D'Angelo in a few few minutes here, but I'd love to go back to you as a college student when you read that job description and you were like, hmm, delicious. That is what I want to do. What was it about identifying criminals, um, forensic analysis, blood typing? Like, what was it? Well, you know, I think at the time I was fascinated by this forensic pathologist on TV called Quincy. But what I didn't know is he was an absolute fictional character. He was a mix between different jobs. He was a crime scene investigator. He was a forensic pathologist. And all of that is what I wanted to do. But when I found 
the criminalist position. And that was at a job fair when I'm literally standing in line for a biotech firm. And, you know, this is 1990 or 1989. And I look over and in another booth, there's a TV screen set up. It was old style CRT TV. And on that TV screen was a man laying on a kitchen floor in a pool of blood. And I was like, <laughs> what is that? So I get go over and that's when I'm introduced to a field I had never heard of called criminalistics. And mm -hmm. it really was the application of science to try to help solve cases. And it was like, that's what I want to do. I had just almost completed my biochemistry degree, wasn't going to get, go into medical school. And I was like, okay, I can do this. And the, you know, the idea of getting out into the field and doing crime scenes as well as working on the evidence in the lab to help the investigators solve cases, just was like, that's my calling. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I feel like when I talk to people who work in, in this type of law enforcement, they tend to fall into one of two camps. And you have this unique perspective of, like, of I love science. So that is sort of this, you know, North Star of I love science. I want to use my biochemistry de degree. I'm interested in this. But most people have a bent to one of two things. They have a bent towards law and order. Got to get the bad guys off the streets. And I bet you could attest to this if you're having worked in the field for so long, or they have a bent toward the macabre where they are just like that. I got to mm, I need to know more about that. Like, that's weird. So do you feel like you fall more into one of those two camps? I'm actually probably right in the middle, you know, because as I was going through my biochemistry studies, I spent more time at the UC Davis uh, medical library where I'm looking at forensic pathology books, you know, and I'm looking, I'm, I'm reading about death and how the death process occurs. And I'm looking at just horrific photographs, you know, especially as a young kid where now I've never seen anything like this. It's not what you see on TV or mm -hmm. this is what somebody looks like when they're decomposing or been involved in a traffic accident. So in many ways, there is a fascination with my own mortality, you know, that mm -hmm. because now it's like, I'm seeing what eventually is how everybody ends up in one way or another. But when they end up that way, because somebody else makes that decision, and mm -hmm. takes their life, that's what becomes very, very appalling. Nobody has a right to take somebody else's life. And so this is where that, the other side, the law and order side comes in, where it's like, I need to catch these guys. You describe in your book, Unmasked, about how easy it is for you to slip into compartmentalizing all of that terrible information. And I really do. I mean, I've said this many times on my show that some people are just really good at it and can easily, it's easy for them to do. It's easy for them to put, looking at somebody who's just been shot, to put that in like this little thing over here where you're like, I don't need to feel anything about that other than doing my job at this moment. Do you feel like you've always been that way? Or was that a learned behavior on your part? 
Well, in terms of being able to slip into law, being able to compartmentalize, yes, I've always been able to do that. You know, what I did not know is that doing that compartmentalization would have a long-term impact on me as a person. There is the aspect of going out to a a homicide scene and, and seeing a woman that's been brutalized or children that, you know, have died a horrific death, as well as, I mean, distinct memories of going out to these gangbang shootings. And you have a young man lying in the middle of the street, and then his mother is on the other side of the crime scene tape just wailing away. And it's like, I've got a job to do, you know, and I would push that away. And then as I got older, because I think your listeners need to understand, if I'm in law enforcement, I mean, this is a very alpha male testosterone driven type of field and showing weakness is not what is acceptable. And so the ability to go out to any type of case and to just go, okay, you know, I'm, I'm here, I've got a job to do and not to show the weakness, that is what is expected. But as I've gotten older and now that I'm retired and I'm in my 50s, you know, the the testosterone driven aspect is not so much there. The ego is not what I'm concerned about. And some of the symptoms of suppressing that trauma that I was exposed to over 27 and a half years kind of started to come out. And that's how I opened the book where I'm going, what is happening to me? I've never experienced sitting in my vehicle and just sobbing after I've talked to the family over the course of the last quarter century. Why is this happening to me now? And that's ultimately, you know, I, I ended up going to a therapist who said, Paul, you know, what you've been exposed to, most people understand that, you know, officers who are involved in shootings that acute trauma, people understand that trauma. But basically, these cases that I've worked over time, it's like small nicks and eventually you get so many nicks, you start bleeding out. And that's what was happening to me, you know, which was, you know, short, relatively shortly after I retired. And so now the book, even though I am talking about a variety of cases, Golden State Killer and behind the scenes aspects of that investigation, and then other cases, some cases that people, you know, people have heard of, like Lacey Peterson or JC Dugard, that I had some small role in, but other cases that I had major roles in that people have never heard about, you know, all these cases they have significance to me in one way or another, but they're all little nicks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's where it, it really does come down to, you know, for me, for the reader of Unmasked, even though, yes, there's the stories of these cases and, and they're fascinating, it's really to understand that the impact of working in this career has had on me, as well as other professionals, you know, mm-hmm. that do similar type work. They may not be involved in NOS or involved shooting, but they are exposed to things that the average person doesn't ever deal with in the course of their life. So true. And it's it's one of those things where, the work that you're doing is incredibly important and it is an incredibly important service to the rest of us so that the rest of us don't have to do it. But I do think the rest of us take it for granted, the impact that it has on the people who are doing this work. No, and, and, and I would agree. And, and I think that, you know, there's uh, people who are in relationships with professionals within law enforcement and don't understand what their significant other is being exposed to or why there's certain behaviors that are happening. And, and that's where now it's, it's really trying to get out there that there really needs to be a recognition that crime scene investigators, criminalists, dispatchers, uh, death investigators, you know, they're not necessarily on the front line with bullets flying, but in many instances, they are so much more exposed mm-hmm. to these traumatic events than the average patrol officer. And it has an impact. And there needs to be a way to address that earlier in these people's career to help improve their quality of life. Or they're going to end up behind the bottle or worse things are going to happen and their personal life is going to be affected. A hugely popular book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark, was written about the Golden State Killer. You knew Michelle McNamara. You were very integral in working on identifying who the Golden State Killer was. Can you give us a super brief, like, real short summary of this case? Sure. Starting 
with what we truly know is in 1974 down in Visalia, California, which is in the Central Valley area of California, a fetish burglar starts breaking into houses and stealing women's underwear and, and jewelry and blue chip stamps and is doing weird things. And he's very prolific. He commits over 100 burglaries in this very small area of, of Visalia in the 74, 75 timeframe. At one point, he tries to take the 16-year-old girl out of her bed in the middle of the night. And as she's screaming, her father tries to come to her rescue outside. And the Visalia ransacker, as he was known, drops the 16-year-old girl and shoots and kills the father, who is a professor at the local college of the Sequoias. Ultimately, the ransacker is confronted by a law enforcement officer, shoots the law enforcement officer, but the law enforcement officer's flashlight actually absorbed the bullet and he survives. And then the ransacker disappears. Six months later, up in Sacramento in June of 1976, now have an offender that is breaking into houses in the middle of the night and initially is attacking women or teenage girls. After 15 attacks, he starts attacking couples, or he breaks into the, the, the house in the middle of the night, wakes the couple up, he's shining a flashlight in their eyes, and he's got a gun, and he makes sure the couple knows they have a gun, and this is to basically prevent the man from getting up and being a, a threat, throw bindings to the woman who now is forced to tie her husband or boyfriend up while he's face down on the bed, and then he would come over and tie the woman up. And then he would go through the house and eventually come back with something akin to dishes. And it would vary from case to case, but typically dishes and place those on the man's back whose wrists and ankles are bound. And then would tell the man, if I hear these dishes rattle, she's dead or I'll kill everything in the house if there are children in the house. He would then take the woman out to the family room and repeatedly sexually assault the woman while the man was laying in, in his bed. And then eventually he disappears from Northern California. This was in Sacramento and he moves out of Sacramento down into the Central Valley and then actually out into the East Bay, including where my jurisdiction was, Contra Costa County. But then in June of 79, he just kind of disappears. And what was known as the East Area Rapist is gone. On October of 1979 down in Santa Barbara, an identical type of attack starts with an offender, masked offender coming in. But when he separates the man and woman out, the woman hears him pacing back and forth saying, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him this time. I'm going to kill him. She freaks out. He loses control. He ultimately is chased by an off-duty FBI special agent who was a neighbor, but escapes. Two months later, in that same neighborhood, a couple is killed. And then from that point on, there's a series of crimes. There's a total of six homicide cases in Southern California between the end of 79 and then May of 1986, in which couples or single women are bludgeoned to death in their bed. And at this point, down in Southern California, he was known as the original Night Stalker, not knowing that he also was the East Area Rapist up in Northern California, who also was the Visalia Ransacker in Visalia. And then this case was unsolved for decades. What made you interested in solving cold cases? You know, I think for me, the, the cold case side in terms of really going after those was the challenge. And I wasn't just going after any cold case. I mean, there's hundreds of gangbang shootings or drug-related shootings that are unsolved. Right. Those never interested me. There's other people that specialize in gangs, that that's their passion. For me, it was those cases that appear to have been conducted by a serial predator. And again, most of the time there were women or children that were killed. And so for me, that was a very sympathetic victim. And I was so empathetic to, you know, what their experiences were in the last moments of their life. But it was also seen as the ultimate challenge because most cases, law enforcement is very good at solving domestic violence cases. The victim knows the offender. Mm -hmm. gangbang cases we know who the rivals are but when you get into the serial predator most of the time this is a stranger to the victim you can't use classic investigative techniques let's figure out the victim's social circles and do that it's much more vague in terms of how to approach the investigation and for me it was that ultimate challenge i was like okay i think 
I can solve these cases where the previous investigators didn't, because I think I can see these cases differently. And now, of course, I had modern technology, but then there's also, these are the types of cases, because, you know, domestic violence and gangbang cases have a high solve rate. At least we know who the offenders are. In these predatory type cases, very low solution rate. And that's where it's like, well, these offenders, they got away with the most horrific type of crime imaginable, and they're still out there. First of all, they don't deserve the life that they're continuing to live mm -hmm. because they did this to this person, this victim. Second of all, this is a public safety issue. They're out there and they are likely continuing to offend because that's what these types of offenders do. So there's that whole side of the, the law and order side of me going, I got to go get this person. Mm -hmm. Don't deserve mm -hmm. that life and I need to get them in custody so they don't do this to some other woman or some other kid. We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast, and I know that I am always hungry for more. And what if you could learn from the world's best all in one place? Guess what? You can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with over 200 of the world's best instructors. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And you can access Masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio modes. You can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible. And then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Sharon. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Sharon. Masterclass.com slash Sharon. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others, and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up, and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. We have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right. And if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes, stinky feet, and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house and then when people come over they're like um your house smells weird there's a solution for that and it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfecting it is taking care of the smell at the source by using lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet it is a whole body deodorant it is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. 
As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code SHARON. You mentioned before that you started your work on cold cases without your boss knowing. (laughs) Was that because it was not your job or was that because they wouldn't approve or some other reason? So let me clarify that a little bit. I started doing laboratory work on cold cases with my bosses knowing what they didn't know is I was slipping out and going and starting to investigate the cases. And that was because that wasn't part of my job. I was a criminalist, but I was just like, I can only do so much with the physical evidence. And it's like, I need to go out and I need to be talking to the victims, the victims' families, the witnesses. I need to be talking to potential suspects and to see if if the boots on the ground aspect can be married up with what I am doing in the lab. And then ultimately I became well-versed in the behavioral side, you know? So really I was wearing three hats doing investigative, the forensics and the behavioral or the profiling aspects. And I was bringing that and leveraging that into these cold cases. And so I felt that I had a skill set that very few could replicate when I was looking at these cold cases. When your boss eventually found out, were you in trouble? <laughs> I, I, it came close. When my bosses did find out, they supported what I was doing, though, you know, at one point, like when I was out at the J.C. Dugard location for two weeks straight, and I kind of inserted myself into that, thinking that the, the Phil Garrido was involved in other cases in my jurisdiction, my commander at the time said, Paul, your management now you can't be doing this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with fast talking, I was able to have him allow me to continue going out there. And I even, when I was at the DA's office working the Golden State Killer case, my boss at one point was saying, Paul, he's dead. I need you doing other things. And I was like, don't take me off this case, please. <laughs> Again, fast talking. And when I have one sheriff in San Joaquin County communicating with my sheriff saying, what the hell is your Paul Holes doing out here in my county? Mm-hmm. You know, and then my sheriff through the chain of command is going, what the hell now is Paul Holes up to? Those were nerve wracking times. But I was fortunate that nobody either truly understood the level of time commitment and the amount that I was slipping out in the middle of the day, what was going on. And uh, generally, these people were people that liked me, you know, so I think Mm -hmm. it's tolerated some of that as long as I continued to perform the other duties that I was mm-hmm. supposed to doing. Mm. So going back to Golden State, you say in your book that everybody kept telling you he's dead. He's disappeared. He's been inactive for so long. Like he's long gone, Paul. And you talk about how like you just knew that he wasn't, that he was out there living some suburban life that he didn't deserve given what he had done to other people. And that just really got under your skin that you just felt strongly he was out there. Was that just a hunch? What made you feel so strongly that he was still alive? You know, I think it was was most certainly an educated hunch. He, He could have been dead for sure. However, you know, as I started taking a look at well, what's the likely age of the, you know, the Golden State Killer? And, and, and I thought he was older than what most, most investigators thought. Unless he was killed or died early, or there was a thought that maybe he was in, in custody, he's possibly still out there. And the fact that he called a victim 24 years after he attacked her. So he attacks this one woman, his oldest victim ever was a 38-year-old woman that he attacked in 1977. He called her 24 years later in 2001, after the DNA link between East Air Rapist and original Night Stalker homicides. And he basically said, remember when we played? And I was going in 2001, he tracked a former victim down who had remarried. You know, she changed, her name of course changed. The phone book, 2001 didn't have her list it had her husband listed but he was able to call her i was like he's still alive 
and I sacramental based. And so that really was one of the correct things I predicted about the case. There's many things I was wrong about, but that was one of the things that I was right about. Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines, you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. I especially like the eye cream. It's not too thick or you feel like it's going to clog all your pores, but it goes on really, really nicely under makeup. For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. Try OneSkin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's oneskin.co, code SHARON. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How did you meet Michelle McNamara, who really was very instrumental in publicizing the case, she coined the name Golden State Killer. You talk in your book about how when she published a big story about it, you realized how serious she was to trying to solve this. Yeah, we had a task force, a law enforcement task force of investigators from across jurisdictions. And Larry Poole from Orange County Sheriff's Office said, hey, there's this true crime blogger, Michelle McNamara, who's interested in doing a Los Angeles Magazine article on the case. Do we as a task force want to cooperate with this author, this journalist? And we went around the table and, and generally we all agreed, yes, let's cooperate. It's time to bring more public attention to this case than what had previously been done. So eventually Michelle ends up calling me I didn't know her from Adam, you know, and I was, due to previous experience with reporters and journalists, you know, I've had some, some bad experiences and I was a little standoffish as I, I described myself, I was just sort of the, just the facts man, the Joe Friday. And as I'm trying to answer her questions in very, very vague terms, she's zinging me with more in-depth questions where I go, oh, you know, she knows this case. And then eventually back and forth as she's marching down to writing this article for Los Angeles Magazine, I confide in her 
some details about my investigation that I should never have confided in, in a civilian. And so when the, the article came out, I was scared. I was going to go, oh, no, those details are going to be in there and I'm going to be fired, you know, mm -hmm. but, but the reality was, is, you know, the other investigators in the task force are going to not trust me, which I would, would kill me. But then I saw that she held back everything that I told her off the record. And that's when she gained my trust. And then we ended up, I mean, it was, there was a pause in our relationship. And then she called me up and said, Hey, you know, I've been asked to write a book and I'm wondering what you think and what you think the task force would think. And I said, yes, absolutely. We need a good book on this case. And so now we're starting to correspond more and more. And then I actually offered her, I said, Hey, would you come up and I'll drive you around and show you some of the crime scenes. So she came up to Concord, California, which is in the East Bay. I met her at the hotel that she was staying at. And then we got in and it was just like two old friends, you know, it was so natural. Uh, she turned the tape recorder on and I drove her around for over eight hours. At that point, we, we became friends. Mm -hmm. um, and then we continued to communicate. She was my investigative partner. She just wasn't riding shotgun with me. And then ultimately she tragically passed away in her sleep, which was just a, a, a massive blow. I had gotten so fond of Michelle that losing her felt like I lost a family member and then I was lost. Mm. For somebody who's not familiar with how this case was finally cracked and the perpetrator identified, how did you eventually identify who had committed all of these horrible crimes? Right. Well, you know, and, and, and fundamentally it came down to physical evidence and it was though the Golden State Killer was very savvy. He was an intelligent, sophisticated offender. He never left any fingerprints that we know of. He always hit his face. Back in the 1970s and then early 1980s, DNA was not known. And he left his DNA in many cases, particularly you know, down in the homicide cases where they have preserved the evidence all these years. And so it was really focusing in on, well, what can we do with the DNA? That's how I got involved in the case back in the 90s was with DNA and then ultimately linked through DNA, the East Area Rapist phase and the original Night Stalker phase using the DNA. And his DNA had been up in the FBI's DNA database for now almost several decades. We had done multiple Interpol searches looking at other countries' DNA databases. And in 2012, I had started using a genealogy tool based on the male DNA with, with no success. And then I had another case uh, in which involved an abduction of a little girl, this Lisa Jensen. And we spent 15 years using traditional law enforcement tactics to try to identify Lisa. And I get a call and I'm pulled into a conference call in which Peter Headley from San Bernardino's office, Sheriff's office had uh, said, hey, we identified Lisa. And she's this Don Bodin out of New Hampshire. She's a missing girl out of New Hampshire. And there's a whole story with Bear Brook murders and everything else related to that. But it was like, how did you identify Lisa? And it was like, well, I used, you know, dnaadoption.com, a genetic genealogist by the, the name of Barbara Ray Venter, who was employing her skill sets to help adoptees find their biological parents. So I was just like intrigued. Okay, if that could be used to identify Lisa, could it be used to identify Golden State Killer? So I immediately drove back to my office. I called Barbara up and after a few questions, and I never told her what case I was working on, I just you know asked her the question, could this be used in this situation? And she was like, I see no reason why it couldn't. And unfortunately, unknown to me, Barbara ended up having a serious health issue and she stopped communicating with me. But an FBI attorney by the name of Steve Kramer popped up out of the blue saying, hey, I hear what you're doing with genealogy. How can I help? And so Kramer and I then became tied at our hip and we had a symbiotic relationship. His bulldog personality, his federal authority, coupled with my knowledge of the case and scientific background, we just turned out to be perfect. And eventually we're marching down using this new genealogy tool in which is, is uh, relying upon a DNA profile that generally your Ancestry.com and 23andMe and Family Tree DNA type companies are using, the SNP profile. And then Barbara came back into the picture. 
And Barbara's like, hey, do you still need my help? And I'm like, oh my God, yes. And so we formed a very small team within the task force of six people, Steve Kramer, myself, and Barbara, and three other individuals. And then we're just working on utilizing this technique. By the time D'Angelo's name popped up, it took us almost three and a half months. And then I was really high on a guy in Colorado and I was focusing in on him that was generated off of this list. And then we got a DNA sample from his sister and she wasn't the sister of Golden State Killer. So I could eliminate the Colorado guy. And then I'm looking going, I'm going to retire in, in a week you know, or two weeks. You know, who, who can I dig into? And DeAndre, there's this cop from Auburn, you know, Joseph D'Angelo. So I start digging into him. And as I dug into him, he became more and more interesting. And then the last day uh, that I was at work, that's when I drove up and sat in front of his house debating whether or not I should just go knock on his door and get a DNA sample, you know, mm -hmm. thinking about the likelihood he's the guy. And fortunately, I, I didn't knock on his door. I drove home. I retired continued to participate in the cases, but then surveillance was set up on D'Angelo and, and ultimately a surreptitious sample was collected and it ended up matching Golden State Killer. Mm. How did that feel to you in that moment of knowing that he had finally been identified? What was your feeling? Well, you know, at that point, I've been involved in the case for 24 years. That was just that weird, almost out of body floating experience. You know, it's just like, oh my God, finally. But then it's immediately, oh, there's a bunch of work that needs to be done. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. kicking into, okay, what's the next step? Got to do this. And, and even though I was retired, I was still very active with the case and ultimately went up into Sacramento homicide with my bud, Ken Clark from Sacramento Sheriff's Homicide. And we hold ourselves up and, and authored the, the arrest warrant together. And then I helped out with the search warrant. And then we just waited for a confirmation of the sample through some other technicalities. And then boom, Sacramento Sheriff's arrested D'Angelo. Mm, had he been living the life you had pictured for him when you were like, nope, he's still out there? still out there. He was living in a middle-class neighborhood from the outside, an immaculate house. His yard was immaculate. I mean, this guy was just taking care of, of everything that the public could see. He was fired from law enforcement. He eventually was hired as a mechanic. And he had done a full career as a truck mechanic in the Sacramento area. He ended up retiring. He had friends who'd go fishing with his fishing buddies, you know, he was living his own life. He had granddaughters, he had daughters. He's just the doting grandfather taking his granddaughters out. Here's a guy who had taken so many people's lives or traumatized so many people. And then he continued to live a life that he didn't deserve. And so that's, you know, that's that angst, but we got him. And, you know, what I get a lot of glee in is that he and I literally retired at the same time. In, in March of 2018. And I would say my retirement has gone better than his. Mm. <laughs> Have you ever spoken to him or spoken to anybody in his family? No. So I was supposed to help interview him with Ken Clark after he had been arrested, but the way that he was acting, we needed to get to the Southern California homicide investigators in front of him. So I didn't get to interview him post-arrest. And then outside of seeing his two younger daughters, I have not talked to anybody else in his family, except extended family. I had a nephew reach out to me who has some information that's interesting. You know, we all hope that D'Angelo will talk someday because he never has. He's never given us any details about his cases. And we mm. have so, so many questions. So interesting. What, I mean, this is obviously a fascinating topic that many people, you know, the, the mind of a serial predator is, fasc right. is fascinating for the general public. Do you have any sense of what made him do it and why he stopped? No, in terms of what made him do it, no. You know, there's, uh, I mean, of course, all sorts of theories that are generic to the, the, the serial predator. What made him stop, I, I do believe, I mean, he, he's somebody that did show empathy during the course of his crimes, which a lot of people might find surprising. And I think he struggled with the fact of what he was doing. 
Secondarily, he was getting older, and at a certain point, he gets into a fight with a six foot three Gregory Sanchez out down in Santa Barbara in 1981, July of 81 which he possibly could have lost. And we don't have another case for five years until he attacks a teenage girl in May of 1986. And there's no male present. But after 86, you know, he's now in his early 40s. There's no more cases that we know of yet. And so I think he was like, I'm done. I physically can't do this. And this is what we hear from Dennis Rader, BTK. Similar situation with a guy he did not expect to be in the house and walked away going, oh my God, I could have lost that fight. I could have been caught. I could have been hurt. I could have been killed. And he stopped. These guys continued to fantasize, but the, the, the physical act may be something that they realize that they are no longer capable of doing. And uh, mm-hmm. a lot of state killers cases, jumping over fences, breaking into houses, running away. It's a very physical type of event that, you know, once mm-hmm. the, he's getting into his 40s, he's no longer as physically capable as he was in his 20s. What made you write this book? What made you write Unmasked? Well, initially it started out, you know, I thought, well, everybody's going to be fascinated with a deep dive into the investigation of the Golden State Killer case. But then as I'm talking to my collaborator, you know, Robin on the book, I'm talking to her about my career and all these other cases. She's like, oh my God, you've done so much more than just Golden State Killer. And it's important Mm -hmm. for for people to know that I'm not just the Golden State Killer guy. I've done a lot. Mm But as we got talked and I'm telling her uh, stories, you know, and there's times when I'm emotionally breaking down, then it became obvious, okay, this is more about now, why, how did the career impact me? As we started working with the publisher, it became, yeah, this, and it became my passion. You know, this is where I opened up and there's not, a, I'm, I'm very private, there's not a lot out there in the public about me. But now it's like, yes, this is so important. Not only talking about Golden State Killer and these other cases that I had a role in, like Lacey Peterson and J.C. Dugard and other cases that have fascinating stories that people haven't heard of, but it's also, this is what somebody like me, the personal sacrifices you know, we make that I've made and other people have made in order to do this job. And that mm-hmm. became, this is now what I want the readers to get out of this. Mm-hmm. So people mm-hmm. see the title unmasked and they're thinking it's D'Angelo unmasked. And yes, but it's also Paul Holes being unmasked. Mm. And so what are you doing now? What is your second career? Well, the second career, of course, I've got a, a podcast called The Murder Squad on the Exactly Right Network. And then I've also entered into a contract with CNN HLN to do some more true crime related TV shows. And so mm. I am filmed uh, some of that and I'll let HLN kind of announce how they, you know, what's going on there, but that's going to keep me busy for a while. Mm, So you still get to keep your expertise up, still get to keep your hands in it, but just not, just not the same, but it's something. Yeah. 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 So interesting. Well, I have one last question for you that I know I've discussed with my listeners before, and I'm curious about your perspective on it. Should people take DNA tests that are uploaded to places like 23andMe, Ancestry.com? Should they do that? So if, if the concern is related to law enforcement, I will say there shouldn't be any concern there, even though on the surface, that seems like that's going to be your biggest threat to privacy. But I will say that I, as a law enforcement officer, when I'm searching these these databases using this genetic genealogy tool, I never had access to anybody's genetic information in the databases. In order for me to do that, I have to download or be able to download their DNA profile. I'm no different than an Ancestry.com user, you know, who gets the email saying, hey, we found a third cousin, right? And Mm -hmm. share this much DNA. That's all I see as a law enforcement officer. So it's really misperceived in terms of what law enforcement can access. I think the bigger concern is going to be, you know, how are these private companies going to be utilizing your DNA? Because you've literally sent your DNA into these companies. So do they have big freezers? You know, they've done their DNA profile, but they probably still have these huge freezers containing your DNA for future testing purposes. And I'm sure that's in their terms of agreement. It is. And then how, how are they going to want to profit from having access to this DNA material? That would be my bigger concern. And I think that's, that really comes down to an individual 
preference as to what their people are comfortable with. My DNA is, has been sent in. I've done my own DNA in, for genealogy. My parents, I used my parents to experiment with in order to figure out how this tool would work before D'Angelo was arrested. So I'm very comfortable with that side of it, but I know there's people out there not. And so I think it's just a personal decision. But just, I think for me, People, of course, have concern about law enforcement's use of this, these genealogy database, but it's really fundamentally learn how the process works and don't just assume. And mm -hmm. my biggest fear is legislatures will, will enact laws that will restrict law enforcement's use without understanding really, well, what truly is the privacy impact with this tool? Because mm -hmm. it is so proven, this golden state killer, hundreds of the worst of the worst types of cases, cold cases have been solved using, utilizing it. Mm -hmm. There is a significant public safety uh, benefit that has to then be weighed against the potential privacy concerns of the individual. Yes. And, and think about this, just a little soapbox issue on, on my side is that in Golden State Killer, before this tool was used, we collected DNA from hundreds upon hundreds of men. We now possess their DNA as a government servant because they looked like a composite generated in the 1970s on this case. An ex-wife or an ex-girlfriend called up and said they were a bad guy. Mm -hmm. Once we did genealogy, we got DNA from one person, and that was a sister of somebody that was related, but we were able to eliminate. That guy never was contacted. To this day, he doesn't know that he was at least eyeball. We saved, genetic genealogy saved hundreds, if not thousands of men from having their DNA collected in this one mm. case. Mm. And that's their DNA now being possessed by the government. So mm -hmm. it shows the power of this tool. Not only can we identify the offender, we can prevent people from the trauma of being the knock on the door. Paul is knocking on your door saying, hey, your name has come up in this investigation of a serial killer. Mm -hmm. and you know what? You can, you can give me your DNA and we can eliminate you. You know, that's very traumatic. Absolutely. So it has the power to exonerate. Mm, good point. Paul, thank you so much for doing this. I read your book with interest. Thank you for your career in public service. Tell everybody where they can find you. So I'm, I'm not somebody who's really out there that much. I do have an Instagram account, which is at paul.holes, and I do have a Twitter account at, at paul.holes. They can find me there. But of course, my book, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is coming mm. out on 26. And so mm. I hope people will at least take a look and see if that's something uh, that they can learn a little bit more about me and a little bit more about real crime. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate your time so much. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you so much for listening to the Sharon Says So podcast. I am truly grateful for you. And I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave me a rating or a review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All of those things help podcasters out so much. This podcast was written and researched by Sharon McMahon and Heather Jackson. It was produced by Heather Jackson, edited and mixed by our audio producer, Jenny Snyder, and hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. I'll see you next time.